All right, it's been a little bit. I hope everybody remembered what I preached on last time because now there's an exam. That's how I work. I'm in seminary mindset, so we'll do seminary here too. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do exams. I don't do good on exams, so I don't like them. Um, Last time I was here with you guys uh, and bringing forth the word, we talked about Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we went through Judges chapter 2, verse 5. And so what I want to do is I want to take and do a quick recap of that of that passage, and then I want to talk about the application portion of that passage and kind of fits in with what Brother Lewis was talking about today. I, after the service, I actually told him um, I, I was going to preach another passage today, and I was going to do this on Wednesday night, but I flipped it around, and uh, it was just because it was on my heart, and you know, nothing. It wasn't like it was a magic trick, right? That I, I, I peered down the tunnels of time and thought, man, I'm going to I'm going to sync this up with Brother Lewis. But I told him today that if the people and judges, if the Israelites had a lamented instead of compromised, we might not even have the book of Judges in the Bible. And we wouldn't even know of all the mess that they got themselves into because they would have handled their problems in a biblical way versus in a way that was sinful and, and brought so much heartache upon them. So in the book of Judges, we know that there is a cycle, right? And we've talked about this, and so we see that the people rebel, and then because the people rebel, God gets angry, and then the enemies oppress the people, and then, of course, the people are uncomfortable, so what do they do? They cry out and they repent, right? And then they get salvation through a judge that the Lord raises up, and then when that happens, there's peace. But then guess what happens? The judge dies, and then they go back to step one, which is the people rebel. Right. And so throughout that, that's the, that's the whole book of Judges. That's the whole cycle. And you can find that in Judges chapter two, 16 to 20. So what we talked about last time and, 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 and I'm not going to read the whole section of Judges chapter one, uh, one to two, five. I'm going to pick up and, 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 and highlight a couple things. But what I want to do is I want to focus on the application. So the first point that I made a little while ago when we went through this was that there is no courage in compromise. There is no courage in compromise or with compromise. Sorry. And so what happened if we open up to Judges chapter one and we start reading, we see that Joshua dies and they ask the Lord, who's going to take us into the promised land? And he says it's going to be. The, the Lord tells them it's going to be Judah, and then Judah does what? They enlist Simeon to help them. And so they start, they start, they join forces and they start to fight these wars and they, they execute judgment on the people. We saw that story, um, or that section here about Adonai Bezek and how he had, uh, they had run him down and they cut off his thumbs and his toes. And the reason why they had done that is because they executed judgment on him because he had done the same thing. And in that judgment, Adonai Bezek realized, I don't even, I can't even complain against God for doing that because he's God and it was a righteous judgment. And then also we saw Othniel, he gets raised up, right? He comes up and he, he wins this victory and he, he wins the, his wife in that victory. And so things are going really well for the Israelites at this point, right? And then verse 19 happens. What does verse 19 say? It says, and the Lord was with Judah and he drave out the inhabitants of the mountain, right? So he was, he was taking care of business. He was doing what he promised. God was 
always proving himself to be faithful, right? He was showing that to the people. But then it says, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. So the people, the Israelites, they got scared. They got scared of these chariots of iron. And from there, it's, it's over. They did, they just, it's a, it's a decision after decision after decision of going against the Lord and sinning. And it all started with a fear of those chariots, a fear of what they couldn't control, an overwhelming sense of, now what, Lord? You, you were helping us, but now they have chariots of iron. You, you can't handle that, Lord. That, that's what they might as well have said. They might as well have printed that right there on the paper so that we could have seen that that's exactly what they were saying with their actions. And so instead, we see that they start making bad decisions. And so they ran away from what God commanded them to do instead of running to the God who commanded them what to do. Let me say that again because I know that I just I, I did a play on words there. They ran away from what God commanded them to do instead of running to the God who commanded them what to do. They got scared and they, they, they beat feet. Instead of, I'm going to turn to the Lord and I'm going to cry out, Lord, they've got, they got chariots of iron, Lord. We don't have anything that could take this out. I bet if I asked, raise your hand if you think God could have handled that, we would all raise our hands in this, in this room. Even the children know that God could have handled those chariots of iron. He could have handled it with the quickness. And so we see that there is no courage and compromise. Next, we said that there was no compliance with compromise, right? And that's in verses, uh, chapter one, verse 20 to 36. And we see that because of their choices to be afraid of these chariots, that they start to compromise. And instead of doing what the Lord told them to do in Deuteronomy, push the people out, get rid of them, don't mingle with them. I don't want you getting mixed up with these people. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to, I'm going to keep my promise to you, but I want you to not intermingle with these people. I want you to push them out. I want you to kill them. I want you to destroy them. Why does God want them to do that? Because God knows the minute that those people compromise and let them dwell with them, that they're going to become like them, that they're going to worship their gods, that they're going to turn away from the one true God. And what happens? They don't get rid of the people. They dwelled with them. I'm sorry, they dwelled with them and they used them for slavery because that was the compromise, right? Well, we're not going to kill them, Lord. We're going to use them as slaves so that we can benefit for, with them. No, but the command was to kill them, to get rid of them, to push them out. They don't tear down their idols and they start to worship their idols and then they doubt God. Unbelief creeps in and they start to live in a mindset of our ways are better than the Lord's and we can do it our way because look, we got slaves. We have the land. Everything's going good. But they, they didn't even see it coming and idolatry and false gods and a false way of living and a wrong way of living crept in and got them. Compromise brings complacency and complacency kills. I used the illustration last time that when I was in Afghanistan and we would get ready to leave the wire to, to leave base, the gate, to go out to cowboy and injury Indian land, there was a sign on there and you saw it every time you went in and every time you came in. It says complacency kills. Big, huge piece of plywood, black letters, complacency kills. It means keep your head on a swivel. Don't let your guard down. 
Don't think you have it all figured out. I used to tell my Marines, when we go out that gate, if you're not scared, I don't want you with us. I want you to stay here. Because if you're not scared, you're not going to take it serious and you're going to let somebody get hurt. It won't be you. It'll be your buddy. Complacency kills, brothers and sisters, and that's exactly what happens to the Israelites when they compromise with what God tells them to do. So there is no compliance with compromise. You cannot follow what God says if you're willing to compromise what God says. And then we saw in, uh, in verse 23 to 26 in chapter 1 that they push out a guy. I'm going to read those real quick here. And the house of Joseph sent to uh, describe Bethel, to spy out Bethel. Now the name of the city, therefore, was Luz. And the spies saw a man come forth out of the city, and they said unto him, Show us, we pray thee, the entrance into the city, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed them the entrance into the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, but they let go the man and all his family. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called the name thereof Luz, which is the name of it today, unto this day. So again, they compromise, right? They're supposed to destroy this guy, kill this guy, whatever. And what does he do? He moves the city of Luz that they just took over and he goes and he sets it up over here. And then it lasted. It says it's there until this day. I don't know how long... The time span between then and now is, you know, it's, it's, it's figured somewhere around 350 years. That's a generational mistake because of compromise, because they decided to do it their own way, because they didn't trust in the Lord to provide what he said he would provide if they did it his way. All right, and then the third thing that we talked about, that there is no comfort with compromise. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we see that God came down, He sent an angel down, and He began to judge the, the, the Israelites for their wickedness. And so in verse 2, or I'm sorry, in chapter 2, verse 1, we see a transition of the people. It says, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum. Okay, well, that's a picture of in Gilgal, they were with Joshua and they were doing what's right. Now they're in Bochum, which literally means a crying place. And now they're doing what's wrong. So it's a transition of the people being obedient to them being disobedient. The Bible is very specific in pointing that out in that in that language, in that verbiage. And then we see that. So that, that was a transition of people. And then we see the tragedy of the people in verse uh, in, in chapter one. I'm sorry, chapter two. Second part of that verse, um, he says, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And listen to this. Why have ye done this? In the, in the Legacy Standard Bible says, what, what, is, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? You turned your back on me. You compromised. And now their idols are here in your house. You're worshiping another God. You don't believe and trust in me. You believe and trust in something else. You show me unbelief. You're wicked. You're perverse. And you're uncomfortable. And then the last thing that we see in, in, in verses 4 and 5 is that we see the tears of the people. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, the people, I'm sorry, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum. 
and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. Why do you think they lifted up their voices and wept? It wasn't because they were joyful. I can promise you that. It was because they were, they were, they were condemned and convicted of the fact that they had turned their back on God and they realized how bad they had messed up. And next time when I'm here, uh, and in, a, in, a, in the next two times, we'll talk through verses two. Or I'm sorry, chapter two, verse six to chapter three, verse six, and we'll see what that looks like. Because guess what's going to happen? They're repenting. God's going to raise up a judge, and we're going to go through the cycle all over again. So, the the big ticket thing here is is that we see that there's no courage and compromise. You're not all the bravery that they had when they were winning the the battles and they were joining up together two tribes to defeat these people and they were doing what God wanted them to do and they were showing courage in what they were doing. The minute that they got scared of those iron uh chariots and they decided to compromise, courage is out the window. There is no courage and compromise. And you can't comply. You can't be compliant with God if you're going to compromise. And if we can't be compliant with him, how could we think that we were going to be comfortable? So there is no comfort in compromise. So the the very first time I preached uh, Judges, we talked about Judges twenty one twenty five. And we talked about how people were doing what was right in their own eyes. And we and when I talked about the application, I said that we were going to break down the heart into three components. And I want to keep on that that kind of um, that theme. And so the three components of the heart are the cognitive, the affective, and the volitional. And the cognitive is what we think, what we know, what we believe, how we reason, and what we remember. So it's all memory stuff. It's all, you know, smart guy stuff, right? Your brain's working, and we're, we're figuring out what we know. We're figuring out what we believe. And then, you know, we, things come to our, mem- uh, our memory, and we can reason between things. Good, bad, right, wrong, and good and different. Then there's the effective. <coughs> Sorry. And the effective is... What do we desire? What do we value? What do we treasure? What do we feel? How are we, how are our emotions coming about? And then the last part is the volitional. And so that is, what are we deciding to do? What are we willing to do? What are we doing? How are we acting? How are we reacting? All of those kind of things. So I like to say that the cognitive is our head. The affectional is our heart. And the volitional is our hand. So head, heart, hand. Okay. And so, oops. And so here's what we know for application that we have to combat compromise because as believers, we have to live for Christ. And to live for Christ, we're going to have to combat compromise. So that's the title of the message is combating compromise. And so to do that, we're going to need heart. We're going to need heart. We're going to need head, heart, hands. We're going to need all three of them, and heart is encompassing all three of those things. And so how do we combat compromise so that we can live for Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. So if we were to go to the cognitive part of the heart, and we'll call it the think tank, okay? What we know, what we remember, what we believe, we have to, we have to know, remember, and believe in Christ, and I know, right? You're looking at me like, Robert, of course that's the answer. Believe in Christ. Okay, everybody get up. We'll sing another song and we can all go home now, right? But it's one thing to sit in here and say, I believe in Christ. But then it's another thing to say, why do I believe in Christ? What do I believe in Christ? Who is Christ? What did he do? What did he accomplish? What is he accomplishing now? What is he doing now? And so who is Christ? <clears throat> I'm going to read some of these. 
And some of them, I'm just going to give you the passage. You can look it up on your own because I want to park on the last two sections of the heart and I want to go to James chapter 4 to do that. So this is what we do know about Christ, right? If we were just to say, who is Christ? This is what we could say. Number one, he's the judge. So go to Acts 17, verse 31. Acts 17, 31. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Why is that important when we talk about battling compromise? Because Christ is going to judge you for compromising. Christ is the judge. Christ is the one that we need to worry about. We don't need to worry about what the world says, what the world thinks, or what the world does. We need to worry about Jesus Christ and what he's going to say and what he's going to do and what he's going to think and say in response to what we're doing as far as compromising his word, compromising his commands. Here's another given of who Christ is. He's the son of God. That's in 1 John 5.20. You guys can write that one down. I'm not going to jump to all of these. He's the Savior, Acts 5.30-32. He's the Christ, Matthew 16.13-16, where Jesus asked the disciples, well, who do the people think I am? Well, they think you're Elijah. They think you're this guy. They think you're that guy. Well, who do you think I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. And so... Those are things that we have to know and we have to remember and we have to believe about Jesus Christ. And then we have to think about this. What did he accomplish? Well, according to 1 John 2, 2, he accomplished propitiation. I know that's a big old churchy word and we all know what it means because most of us are here every Sunday and Wednesday, but a lot of people don't understand what that means. Propitiation, he paid it all. The debt is cleared. The settled, the account is settled. And, oh, by the way, propitiation, not only do you settle the debt, but you clear that person from the debt, so you get that person. Propitiation. That's an important word. So what did he accomplish? He accomplished propitiation. 1 John 2.2. 2. Turn to 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. And it says... For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He he provided mediation for us. You think we can make ourselves right with God? No, we we needed Christ to do such a thing. We couldn't have done it on ourselves. If we could have done it on our own merits and our own actions, our own thoughts, guess what? Christ would have never had to die on the cross and we wouldn't have to talk about such a gruesome, horrible thing that happened to our Savior. We could have done it ourselves and we would have saved everybody a lot of time. We wouldn't even have to come to church to learn about all this stuff, right? We could just watch football on Sundays and have a good time. He provided reconciliation, Hebrews 2.17, justification, Romans 5.18, sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30, and salvation, Romans 1.16. Let me say those again. Propitiation, mediation, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, and salvation. Brothers and sisters, 
That's everything. We don't need anything after that. Is it okay for us to go to the Lord and ask for help and to seek wisdom and guidance and to plea with Him for our loved ones who are sick or all the things that we can think about asking? Absolutely. But what we needed has already been taken care of in the work of Jesus Christ. Everything that we needed for eternal life has been taken care of in the work of Jesus Christ. What is he doing now? He's reigning. Go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the words of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He is reigning right now in this moment Yesterday, today, and forever. We don't ever have to worry about Christ not being on His throne. And if we don't have to worry about Christ being on His throne, then why are we scared of the iron chariots in our lives? Why do we compromise when those things pop up? And we think, oh, this is outside of the strength and the works of Christ. He's he's not going to be able to handle it. He's interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore, he is able to save them to the, uh, to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Not just one-time intercession, right, at the point of salvation. I'm talking about hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second, day by day, month by month, year by year. You tell me a measurement of time and I'll put it in there. And he's doing it for us on the regular, without stopping. And guess what? Not just for Robert Kale, not just for Louis Sacron, not just for Jocelyn Kale or Davy Davis, for every single one of his children, for every single one that he shed his blood for, for the elect of Jesus Christ at all times. And what will he do for us? Philippians 4.13 says that he will strengthen us 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says he'll equip us. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, he'll protect us. And Hebrews 9.28, praise God, he's going to return for us. We are not going to be staying here. This is not our final resting place. He will return for us. We do not have to worry about not being with our Savior. So that is the cognitive portion of what we need to know. We need to think about, believe on, remember reason and think through all of these things that Christ is, all these things that Christ has accomplished, all of these things that Christ is doing, and all of the things that Christ will do so that we can begin to combat uh, compromise. The second thing that we need to do is we need to look into the affections portion of our heart. I'll call it the worship center, the heart, right? That That was head. Now we're moving into heart, the worship center. Turn to James, and we're going to camp out in James for the rest of the time. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And Lewis has been beating this, this passage up uh, the last few times, and um, it, it just it fits. 
It really fits if you dive into this chapter um, and you really think about what it's saying. You, you, you can answer a lot of questions about why we do what we do. So here we go. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. From whence comes war, wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble." What are we desiring? If we, if we really stopped and think about that and we say, what are we desiring? And you were to make a list of the things that you want out of life. Where is Christ on that list? And I'm just being honest because I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have a job. I know what it's like to work and go to school and have a family and want to have a hobby and all these other things. And the next thing you know, we see all these things on this list. Christ, church, and it just keeps on going. They're on the list, but they're not where they need to be. So what are we desiring? Are the things that we're desiring the things that are actually causing problems in our lives? Are the things that we are desiring causing us to compromise against what the Lord has commanded us to do? And if they are, how do we right that ship? What are our, what are, when we are desiring what we're desiring, what are we going to use it for? What are our, what are our motives and our intentions? It says, you ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Oh Lord, I need a million bucks. Oh Lord, I need a bigger house. Oh Lord, I need a better paying job. Oh Lord, give me wisdom on this, this woman that I want to marry and she's an, she's an unbeliever, but I, I can save her, Lord. I can share the gospel with her. Are we asking God for what we really truly need and want and desire? Are we asking Him for things that are outside of His will and it makes it where we're pursuing after sinful things and we're trying to ask the Lord to grant and bless off on these sinful things? And then when we get what we ask for, how are we going to use it? How are we going to use it? In verse 4 it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The enemy of God. Enmity with God. When was the last time we were at enmity with God? Before salvation. So why would we want to go back to that position by compromising and living our lives for the world and turning our back on God and on Christ and what He's done for us, not listening to the convictions of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, please, brother, sister, don't hear me say that I think that you can be saved one day and then tomorrow you can't be saved. I don't believe that at all. That's that's a heresy, and, and I feel bad for people that believe that simply because that's a burden that nobody can carry. But what I'm saying is, why would you want to put yourself back at enmity with God? Because you're in the world again. You went back to the world. You went back to the vomit like a dog. 
And then in verse 6, we see this. Oh, sorry, in verse 5, he says, Do you think not... I'm sorry, do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain that the Spirit that dwelleth dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that God is jealous because we don't want to pick Him? No. Because we don't want to worship Him? Because we don't want to desire Him first and foremost? No. That word jealousy or that word envy, it's, it's not in the sense of I'm jealous because that guy has a new truck and I want a new truck. It's, it's jealousy and envy from the sense of, I know what's right for you, child, and you're picking the wrong thing. Why? Why would you go to this thing in the world that can do nothing for you when you could have me? Right? That, that's what that's saying. That's, that's what he is saying there. He's saying he's jealous and envy because we pick something else thinking that it will fulfill us when it will not. Lewis talked about it today with those broken cisterns. That's all that stuff is. And then the last thing, as far as our heart, we have to have a heart of humility. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And then the last thing that we'll talk about is the volitional, how we're going to act, what we're going to do. I'll call it the behavioral unit, our hands. We went from head to heart, now we're at hands. And when I read through these verses, I want you to notice the order of these actions. It's very specific for a reason. You can't skip one and go to the second one and then go back up to the first one. You have to do it in order. Starting in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. So first we have to submit, right? We have to submit. We've talked about that before in the past, using the passage 1 Peter 5, 6, uh, where it says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. It, it takes submission. And submission is, I have my own Robert Kale math equation for what submission has, what has to happen for there even to be submission in your life. Obedience, um, and trust, obedience plus trust plus hope and submission, right? Get your, sorry, obedience, trust and hope get you to submission. You can't submit to anything that you're not willing to be obedient with or to. If you don't want to be obedient, you will never submit. You will never make, or sorry, you will never recognize that Christ is the Lord of your life. Christ is either Lord of all or the Lord of none. You can't live with one world or one foot in the world and one foot in his kingdom. Number two, you have to resist the devil. But notice it says submit first. You're not resisting the devil unless you're submitting to the Lord. Go ahead and try to submit, or I'm sorry, go ahead and try to resist the devil before you submit to the Lord and see what happens. See how successful you'll be because you won't be. He'll be on your back like, like it's on. And then we have to flee temptation. I know for me, that's a hard thing to do. Sometimes I want to, I want to be confrontational. I want to fight. I want to, I want to stand my ground because for men, right? I don't know if women think this way. I'm not a woman, believe it or not, even though the society might say that some people can be whatever they want to be and that I'm not, I'm not a woman, but I don't like to run from things. You know what I mean? This, I'm not special. I, I, I don't live some, 
you know, crazy whatever life. But man, I, I was, I've been a warrior for my whole life. I've been a warrior for my whole life. I never ran from anything on that battlefield. I can at least say that. And when I see flee from temptation, I see run from temptation and I think, oh, are you crazy, Lord? You made me a warrior. How am I going to flee from something? That is completely unorthodox. It's completely, uh, what is it? Because it was that word, unintuitive. But we have to flee the temptation, brothers and sisters, because the minute we try to fight it without submitting to the Lord, without running away from it and regrouping and asking for help and seeking guidance, guess what? We're going to succumb to that temptation, and then it's too late. Now we can't flee because we're already in the mix. And then it says draw close to God. We submit, we resist the devil, we flee temptation, and then we draw close to God. That's part of that regrouping. We run from the temptation, we regroup, we get in our scriptures, we seek wisdom, and as we're doing those things, we're talking to our pastor, we're talking to a counselor, we're talking to a mentor who's pointing us to the cross, and we know that we're drawing close to God. Well, what happens? It says it right there in the verse. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh unto you. That is a promise. If you move closer to God, He will move closer to you. You don't have to worry about, well, Lord, I've been moving up to you for the last 25 miles. Where are you at? Are you coming? No, the Lord is coming to you. Open your eyes, pay attention, be vigilant, and continue to do what you're commanded to do and know that the Lord's always going to do what He says He's going to do. We don't have to worry about checking in and saying, well, Lord, are you going to do it yet? Did you do it yet? Did you do it yet? He's going to do it, I promise you. And then we see at the end of verse 8, it says, cleanse your hands. Recognize and confess your sins. Recognize and confess your sins. How hard is that for some of us to do too? Just to say, yeah, I messed up. Husband to wife, yeah, I messed up. I haven't been loving you like Christ loves the church. I haven't been caring for you. I'm not living with you in an understanding way. Please forgive me. And not just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is weak. I'm sorry is impersonal. But when you say to your spouse or to somebody that you've offended, please forgive me, that's personal. That says, I know I sinned against God and I know I sinned against you. And that says to purify your hearts. We repent and seek forgiveness for the compromises. And then we do the Ephesians 4 model of putting off the old man, renewing our mind and the spirit, and putting on the new man. You can't just put off and put on. That's a that's a two pieces of bread with nothing in the middle sandwich. Nobody likes that kind of sandwich. You need to put off, renew your mind in scripture, renew your mind in prayer, renew your mind by talking to your pastor or a counselor or a friend that's going to point you to the cross, and then you put on the new man. You stop doing this and you start doing this, but to do this you have to you have to get your head in the right spot. You have to get your heart in the right spot. You have to check your cognitions, your affections, and your volitions. Because without doing that, your heart is going to Jeremiah 17, 9 you. It is going to lead you astray because it's wicked and deceitful. Don't think that you can't, you can just keep your heart all closed up and, and packaged up inside your chest and think that you don't need open heart surgery like the rest of us. Brothers and sisters, that's what this is. This is open heart surgery. This is biblical open heart surgery. And if we don't do it on a regular basis, then we're going to compromise. I said the title of this message is combating. 
compromise. It's not a one and done. It's an every day, moment by moment, day by day, month by month, whatever you want to call it. It's a consistent battle to do what's right. And then it says, the last portion of this just says, be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Have godly sorrow for the sins that we commit. Have godly sorrow for the compromises that we make. Godly sorrow says, Lord, I sinned against you, a holy God, and I hate that sin. And I want to make it right. And I want to live for you. Worldly sorrow says, man, I'm in the doghouse with my wife right now. I got to do something to make it right. I'm going to go get flowers and put a cheap I'm sorry on the card. And hopefully everything will go back to the way it was. And I can keep living my life. Worldly sorrow doesn't care about God. Worldly sorrow only cares about the circumstances and the consequences that are uncomfortable to you because you made a bad choice. And once those are over with, you go back to doing what you want to. Godly sorrow says once those consequences and circumstances are over with, that you keep moving towards the Lord. You keep drawing closer to the Lord because He's drawing close to you. So, to put compromise to death, I pray that we are a church that knows Christ. We think about Him, we remember Him, and we believe in Him. And what he says and what he did and what he accomplished and what he's going to do and what he is doing, all of it. And then I pray that we look to Christ, that we desire him, that we value him and that we treasure him and that we see that we need him day by day, moment by moment. And then I pray that we obey Christ, that we submit to him, hope in him, trust in him and that we humble ourselves under him so that we can live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, your word, Lord, which we can open and that we can see that we need to make changes in our lives, Lord, that we we all are guilty of compromise. And Lord, I just pray that we would combat compromise in a way that is glorifying to you, exemplifying to you, magnifying to you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to do that. I pray that we would flee from temptation, Lord. But that first, before we even do that, that we would submit to you, that we would resist the devil, that we would flee from temptation, that we would confess and repent from our sins, that we would have godly sorrow over the things that we do that are sinful to you. Lord, give us strength because we can't do it on our own. We need you. And Lord, I pray that when we see the iron chariots of our life, that we would trust in you and that we would go to you and that, like Brother Lewis said this morning, that we would lament to you, that we would turn to you, complain about what's going on to you, not about you, that we would trust in you. God, that we would keep trusting in the person who keeps us trusting. God, strengthen us, please. We need you so badly. And I pray that you would crush out of us, every single one of us, any self-dependence that exists in us. We say this in your name, Lord. Amen.